Good morning, Memphis. Oh, I have been enjoying this warmer weather this week. It is another beautiful day here in the Mid-South. Of course, you know, I think every morning that I have with you is a beautiful day. So I'm glad we are spending some time together once again this Saturday morning. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn more about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So this week, we saw the inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. And this was, of course, a historic moment as we now have the first woman VP, the first Black woman, the first South Asian woman, the first daughter of immigrants as vice president. Now, as part of this kind of bigger past election cycle, we also saw intense community organizing, particularly as all eyes were on Georgia and their Senate runoff races. So a lot of big political news, a lot of big historic moments here in the U.S. And to contextualize some of what has been happening, especially as we think about feminism and social movements, this morning I have joining me Dr. Melissa Brown. Dr. Brown is a postdoctoral fellow at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Her areas of expertise include intersectionality, social movements, and sexual politics. Her research on anti-racist and Black feminist social media activism has been published in the Journal of Ethnic and Racial Studies, and she is also the digital editor for the forthcoming volume entitled Black Feminist Sociology. Dr. Brown is also the creator of BlackFeminisms.com, a blog that cultivates and celebrates scholarship that centers Black women. Good morning, Dr. Brown. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so excited that you could join us this morning. Um, your work spans just a variety of important and timely topics. So like I mentioned in introducing you, so Black feminism, intersectionality, sexual politics, and social movements. And so I'd like to get started with just hearing your thoughts on our new vice president, on VP Kamala Harris. I mean, what does this, what does this mean for us? That is a really good question. So I think what it means for us is when I think about Kamala Harris, I think about Black women voters, uh, I guess since the dawn of Black women getting uh, liberation in this country and the ways that Black women suffragettes organize, trying to get not only Black women the vote, but also Black men and the ways that they had to negotiate uh, kind of strategizing around uh, Black women's suffrage. A lot of times when we hear the term women's suffrage, we immediately think about um, white women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, and these women, but that's not Black women's story. Uh, Black women's story is that when they were participating in the abolitionist movement and that at the coinciding suffragettes movement led by white women, they found that in the space of abolition, um, Black men leaders wanted to prioritize their needs. In the space of uh, suffragettes, white women wanted to prioritize their needs. And so that meant for Black women, when would they get the vote? 
And ultimately, Black women suffragettes decided to align themselves with Black male abolitionists and advocated for Black men's vote before their own, right? And so mm -hmm. that kind of looks at how we saw Barack Obama uh, be president before Kamala Harris entered into the picture. So that being said, I think that it's just about the long arc of Black women organizing and the way that they balance the needs of the community versus their own personal needs. And so what we saw <laughs> with the past four years is that uh, over time, people of color's rights are being eroded in these various ways, whether in the courts or through executive orders. And so Black women have been on the ground organizing. I mean, really trying to get people to see the value of voting and why it needs to happen in this a particular current time, right? And Black women's organizing doesn't necessarily look uh, the way that we think that organizing looks, right? So a lot of the criticism of Black Lives Matter was that Black women uh, being the leaders, they were being rendered invisible and people kept looking for a Black male charismatic figure like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King Jr. Not thinking about the ways that Black women organize because a lot of them are workers, a lot of them are homemakers. So a lot of their organizing is gonna be on the ground and you're gonna see the results of that when it matters, such as this past election uh, when entire states flipped for the first time ever. And in other states that look like say in Arizona, indigenous women, uh, putting in their work in California and Georgia as well, uh, Asian women putting in their work. So there's so much that women of color uh, have done and a lot of the groundwork for them to organize the way that they have goes all the way back to the ways that Black women have strategized uh, in the post-slavery era. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love this connection, really bringing those past strategies and those past wins, right, those past successes, and seeing how they are continued to be replicated today, right, this really long legacy of Black women, and as you mentioned, women of color, really um, connecting with their communities where they are. Um, so thinking about what you said, organizing looks differently um, for Black women or women of color than what we think of as, I don't even want to say traditional organizing because it has been a tradition, right? It's just not where <laughs> we're looking at organizing or not the model that we're thinking of when it comes to organizing. Uh, but we see that women, Black women, women of color, their strategies for organizing are successful and are working. It only seems a surprise if you've been looking, you know, at organizing in a different, you know, space or through a different lens. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about some of the strategies that Black women or women of color are using to organize? Um, sure. So I really do think it depends on your positionality within the, I guess, the legacy of organizing overall, right? So for millennial women or Gen X women, um, a lot of that organizing started on the internet and then transitioned uh, offline into the streets where they then connected with a lot of Black women who have been doing it uh, prior to social media and prior to internet and had established organizations or foundations that were uh, designed to um, kind of use boots on the ground tactics like knocking door to door or phoning people or things like that. So I think it really depends. Like a, it, it, there's social media organizing and activism. So that's creating hashtags and the, and the broader use of digital media mm -hmm. uh, and ways of like creating digital content, right? So Gen Z Black women are creating videos on TikTok 
or for example, um, just different strategies depending on what your realm looks like. I think that the one that we've lauded the most and praised the most is when we look at say what Stacey Abrams did uh, in Black Women in Georgia who uh, founded projects like the New Georgia Project, um, people like Helen Butler, the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, these organizations that look a lot of like uh, going back to Black women suffragettes movements, uh, the Black Clubs Club, Black Women's Club movement, um, and how these Black women formed organizations during the once again the post-slavery era, uh, trying to speak to the issues that Black women uniquely face, and also uh, address what they felt like the needs of the Black community were about. So I think these strategies are both legacy strategies that have evolved over time. Um, so like I said, the Black Black Women's Club movement going on to uh, Stacey Abrams, I think there's a direct line for that. But then there's these new tactics that once again, uh, still have a legacy. So Alyssa Richardson is a, a professor at the University of Southern California and recently published a book called Bearing Witness While Black. Uh, and in that she talks about the ways that activists today use smartphone technology and social media technology. Uh, so when I think of that, I think of that advertisement of um, exotic dancers based in Atlanta who, uh, you know, told you to get your booty to the pole. So, <laughs> like, was a viral video, right? And they use social media and digital technology for really fun strategy that looks a lot different than the type of Black women organizing that we're used to. So I think social media, Black people being able to use smartphone technology and social media technology to kind of create diverse content around activism and around politics is something that's really unique about this moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we're going to get more into social media and its usage in a moment. But I wanted to touch on something um, that you said. So you mentioned, you know, these legacy strategies and you also mentioned, you know, how um, these strategies are also dependent upon individuals positionality or their own social location, um, which really to me brings up this idea of intersectionality and this broader topic of black feminism, which we have been inherently talking about without really, you know, naming it. So for folks who maybe are unfamiliar, could you just give maybe a broad definition about intersectionality and black feminism and what that means? Absolutely. So intersectionality is this concept about the way the systems of power that we acknowledge in our society. So Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term and in her essay on it, uh, she wrote about racism and sexism as these systems that not only affect people at the individual identity level, but at these multiple intersecting levels. And so she gave the example of Black women who, when we enter into the court system, we find that the uh, definitions of what sexism is or racism is at the legal level don't adequately capture the issues that Black women face. So the standard for racism is based off of, say, what a Black man might experience. And the standard for sexism might be based off of what a white one experienced. And what gets complicated is that for Black women, particularly in the workplace, we experience racism and sexism at the same time. And so when you go into the court system and you try to make your argument, you actually have to 
uh, negotiate whether or not you're going to make an argument on the basis of sexism or on the basis of racism, because depending on how the court responds, they might say, well, Black men don't experience this in the place that you work, so it's not racism, and white women don't experience this in the place that you work, so it's not sexism, and Black women aren't a legally protected category, right? Being both Black and a woman uh, does not give you legal protections unique to your experience. And so because of those standards, Black women's struggles potentially get missed. And so the legal standard is just one example. Intersectionality shows up in social movements. It shows up in workplace hierarchies. It shows up in schools. It shows up in the fabric of our society in the ways that being a both and <laughs> and not just an either or uh, affects your life and the way that you experience life. As far as Black feminism, um, intersectionality underpins Black feminism. Black feminists believe that we need to acknowledge intersectionality if we want to adequately address the social ills in society. Uh, and so sometimes I see people, especially online, they'll say something like, oh, uh, feminism's just for white women, or there's no such thing as Black feminism, or that Black feminism uh, is a trick that <laughs> white that white women use to pit Black women against the Black man. And that's not really what it's about. It's about acknowledging that Black women have a unique positionality that shapes our experiences. And because of that, we need to be aware of how are we going to adequately protect Black women and girls and address the inequalities that they uniquely experience, because not all of the issues um, the the community issues or community uh, ways of finding solution uh, affect Black women uniquely. So going back to the idea of intersectionality and social movements, Black Lives Matter was founded by Black women, and yet uh, it became in the media and when social media users came to it, something that was centered on Black male victims disproportionately, which is something that I found in my own research. And because of that, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who also coined intersectionality, then with her African American Policy Forum, uh, founded the um, the 2015 Say Her Name campaign, uh, which she launched with a report that showed that Black women are also uniquely affected by police violence. And so we need to say her name, and we need to have a unique movement for Black women victims of police violence, because unfortunately, the Black, broader Black Lives Matter movement has kind of been distorted uh, because of our tendency to focus on male-centered victims, not even just within uh, today's time, but historically, when we look at the Black movements of our time, Black men's issues have always taken primacy over women's issues and LGBTQ people's issues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think this focus, as you brought up the um, Say Her Name campaign or this hashtag to raise awareness and really recenter Black women's experiences. I know Kimberly Crenshaw has talked about how, you know, we often don't have these scripts or these frameworks to really understand um, some of the social problems that are happening because we've been so used to seeing them through one framework, in this case, thinking about Black men's experiences, or even in the cases of intersectionality more broadly, bringing up this issue of thinking of gender issue or sexism through a framework of white women's you know, issues, or racism through a framework of Black men's experiences, right? Um, and I think the other piece that I just wanted to highlight that you mentioned, you know, when we're thinking about intersectionality, because I've often seen people um, kind of hashtag or in their bios on social media kind of claim themselves as like an intersectional feminist or <laughs> um, kind of this tag, which is 
been um, unique and interesting to me. Um, but thinking about intersectionality, not as these individual identities that make us, you know, unique in this world, right? But rather, as you mentioned, these systems of power that do impact members of a certain social identity, right? So that's where that identity piece comes in. But we're thinking about how power is in being enacted on these groups of people in different ways. <laughs> yes, I I think that um, what's happened with intersectionality is that, uh, so the concept of Edward Said talked about the traveling theory, right? So intersectionality might've started by a legal scholar, but it escaped into other realms of academia. And then ultimately I, as a, a digital scholar argue that Tumblr got its hands on intersectionality. And Tumblr was at the time disproportionately young people. So uh, younger millennials, early Gen Z. Uh, and they, they, what they did with it, I think was liberated from academic spaces. But at the same time, once it got out of that space, once it got out of the hands of black feminist scholars, some of the meaning kind of got distorted, right? So ultimately, this idea of power is what intersectionality should focus on. And the reason why we should is because we have to recognize regardless of all or any of our identities, we all experience intersectionality. I believe Tressie Cottom wrote an essay early in Trump's presidency where she said Trump was intersectional. And what that was pointing out was there's this idea of white supremacy, white nationalism, that in and of itself is about the identity of white conservative men. That, that's an intersecting identity. There's power uh, relative to whatever those identities are uh, relative to everybody else. And we saw that with the types of mandates that that particular administration wanted to put out. So for example, J uh, President Joe Biden said he was going to repeal uh, the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was literally about the positionality of the people in that administration relative to looking at people from Arab and North African countries as being other, as being different. And so they use their positionality and their position within a structure that empowered them to disenfranchise uh, Arab people and North African people and generalize it to other nations as well uh, over time. So I, I caution people when they do embrace these ideas, particularly internet first, they have to be careful about the way that it's framed to them. What does it mean to be an intersectional feminist? Because intersectionally, intersectionality means something about power. So where are you trying to communicate when you identify as such? Um, maybe you're trying to say that you're a feminist um, ally of women of color. Maybe you're trying to say that you're an anti-racist feminist. There's more precise language. Uh, and I think people have to, once they learn this new concept, just dig a little deeper and really look to uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Patricia L. Collins, um, Audre Lorde, so many Black feminists and other women of color feminists as well who use intersectionality and were faithful uh, to the way that it was intended. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, I think you brought up an excellent point of how, on one hand, it's great when um, some of these terms get, you know, liberated out of just the academic circles that they maybe have started in or is circulating within. But then there is something that happens when any type of idea gets disseminated to a really broad audience, right? And, and what happens kind of in those lost in translation moments. Um, right now, we are, of course, 
so focused on social media as a educational source and information source, of course, an entertainment <laughs> source. Um, but there are, can be some dangers when we're not kind of investigating further what some of these ideas mean. Absolutely. Um, and I know that your work really focuses on the role of the digital in mm -hmm. disseminating ideas, getting people organized, getting people to act, right? Um, so I want to dig more into this, but let's take a quick break. We're here on WYXR 91.7 FM. So we're back and this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Melissa Brown. So before the break, we were just talking about how, you know, social media is so great for kind of disseminating information, also um, kind of helping folks understand maybe these complicated topics that we might talk about as academics. Uh, but, but we can also see how social media um, is a balance between being informed and, and being disinformed <laughs> or misinformed, rather. Um, and so tell me from your work, okay, what do we know about how social networking sites can be used to organize, mm -hmm. to, you know, get people to do something, right? To call people to action. That's a good question. So social networking sites and applications are information and communication technologies they have a dual function so on the one hand you can disseminate information as well as learn it exchange information profit off information gatekeep information on the other hand you can communicate you can broadcast you can uh, share you can perform uh, and this dual function kind of leads to what some scholars uh, communication scholars call context collapse and this is this idea that uh, once you go onto the internet, who you are in the offline world, depending on uh, where you're at and what your position, how your intersectionality, again, um, you might perceive and consume information and communicate differently uh, relative to other users. However, because they are also engaging in that space with you, they might quite quickly pick up and distort. Uh, and spread uh, what's going on there. So I think the powers of digital technology, particularly for people of color, and not just specific to the United States, but the global body of people of color, is that when once smartphone technology got created, uh, access to the internet, internet became much cheaper than when, um, say, Microsoft uh, and Apple first launched computers. Uh, you no longer had to have a dedicated modem or things like that to get on the internet. You could literally connect to the internet anywhere. And so this is when we begin to see people publicizing uh, their issues alongside alongside uh, what legacy media is coming in and digitizing their news and their media at the same time. So I really like the fact that with smartphones and social media technology, people who are on the ground can tell you what their story is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly important. Uh, but at the same time, uh, pre-existing, and I think we should be thinking about the fact that even though technology has accelerated disinformation, this disinformation is longstanding, as are the disinformation practices. Um, so that being said, the, the, the perils of social networking sites then are that they can also be used to distribute 
disinformation, capitalize off of different disinformation, uh, and also can be used to communicate to an audience that isn't knowledgeable, uh, doesn't have critical social media or literal uh, critical media literacy either, uh, and kind of just consumes information at face value because it confirms their existing biases. Yeah, we definitely see the danger of that. I mean, of course, in these past several months, we've seen a lot more attention to social media, you know, to Facebook, should there be regulations, you know, or seeing Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, limiting certain users or disbanding, you know, certain groups or even hashtags, right? Stopping hashtags to be searchable in order to kind of fight against Um, various disinformation. Um, But it can be very tricky, as you mentioned, because social media also, we build relationships of trust over social media. You know, we follow people and they become kind of our trusted friend, even though we've never met, right? And so we um, trust the information that they're giving us, not only because it maybe confirms what we, you know, already believe about the world, but also because we see ourselves as having a relationship with this person. And surely they wouldn't tell us something <laughs> that's incorrect or, you know, encourage us to do something that's wrong, right? So we're finding this community. And especially, you know, I'm thinking now with all of the different social distancing mandates, you know, social networking becomes an even more important part of our community and our social experience, um, because we're not doing as much of that, you know, in person now. That's that's definitely a good point. And I have been thinking about that because um, with the pandemic, obviously, everyone's turning online who can turn online. And the, the, the point that you made about the way that we feel like we trust these people that we've connected on the internet is, it makes me think of a concept that actually was a mass media concept specific to the television called parasocial interaction. And so it's this idea of when you're in an audience and you're consuming content from um, a performer or someone else, through some type of medium, whether it's the computer or the television, of you're gonna have this experience where you feel like you know this person, you feel like you're vibing with them, you know, like, and this could be something, say, like, even if you're reading a novel, right? Like, so a lot of, um, say, Harry Potter fans, for example, when they consumed the book, ended up like when we were back in young, when we were young, they would go to the um, movie theater dressed in their Harry Potter, like their schoolhouses, and all these types of things, because, you know, you read the book, and you're having not just like, you know, you're not just consuming the content and being entertained, but you are feeling like you're connecting. And so television, novels, all types of mediums, because they are a type of communication, do make you feel like you're connecting with another human. But the reality is because of that technology, you're not actually connected. But that doesn't mean that they can't turn into real connections. And I think that that's what people have to be I'm very cautious of going forward, uh, especially because I think at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things that happened was a lot of white academics who were pretending to be women of color uh, got exposed for either catfishing online or doing it in real life uh, offline uh, rather and we were learning because I do think the pandemic forces us all to be inside that hey like these people that I thought I knew might not be who I thought they were and so I think that people thinking about 
is this connection authentic? If I remove this technology, will the connection be just as strong? Do I feel comfortable talking to this person face-to-face? -face? Um, I think that's all important factors to think about, especially when people say are online dating, for example, right? Like <laughs> using stuff like Tinder and all these types of things to connect with people that you want to build a life with and have an intimate connection with uh, going forward. Um, or if you just want to have friendships online or anything like that, it's just really important to think about what is that connection without the technology? Because you might find that you're having a psychological experience that makes you feel like feelings are there that aren't actually there without that technology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking as you were talking, you know, there is so much shared emotion that's created through these online connections. And some of those can be, you know, false feelings. They feel real, but they're, you know, maybe based in, you know, they're not based in reality. But at that same token, we can use you know, these mediums to create and share or express, um, you know, different emotions or different feelings um, that do create a sense of community and solidarity that is real and that is, you know, tangible. Um, and I think you kind of talk about this in, I know you have this idea of virtual sojourners. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about what, what that means. Absolutely. So the concept of virtual sojourners uh, came up for me. I wrote, was writing for an essay. It's for an essay for a volume called Network Feminisms. Uh, and this concept of network feminisms is the idea of the ways when women and LGBTQ people get on the internet, how they use their standpoint uh, as a source of knowledge to create new knowledge, to push back against various narratives. And for me, when I think about Black women and Black LGBTQ people, I really think about the ways that if not for them engaging with digital technology, so many stereotypes or so many um, so much misinformation about Black people that once again existed prior to the internet would still be ongoing and perpetuated in mainstream. And I think that because of the ways that Black women and LGBTQ people engage the internet, we're learning new knowledge, not just about them as a group, but all of us, because they are informing us differently about gender and informing us differently about sexuality, uh, because they're saying, hey, yes, you might be a woman, but this is my experience as a Black queer trans woman. Oh, you might be a, um, you know, a man, but this is my experience as a Black trans man. So I think it's very important for us as a society to really think about what does it mean when people get on the internet and their positionality has been marginalized? We learn new knowledge when marginalized people enter the internet, thinking about the fact that what we call the internet was really designed by a bunch of white men, rich white men, well-educated elite white men in Silicon Valley. Um, and Silicon Valley is not the entire United States. So I like the fact that, for example, there's a podcast that I love and I actually got a, a talk, got to do a talk Claiming uh, with the executive director and the the producer of the podcast, her name is Diamond Collier, and she is uh, she is an executive director of an organization that focuses on Black trans women in Texas, and she has a podcast with her peers. I believe their names are Zahir and uh, Mia Michelle. Uh, it's a podcast called Marsha's Plate, and it's about being Black trans people, Black former sex workers, and they really talk about and share knowledge that you would not hear if they had not decided 
to create that podcast because television doesn't make space until recently, I should add, uh, for Black trans people. So there's another trans uh, Black woman named um, T.S. Madison. Madison Hinton is her full name. And she's getting a show recently on WETV called the T.S. Madison Experience. But T.S. Madison formed her identity uh, online years ago. She used digital technology to produce her um, online persona that she can now pivot into a television persona that I hope she gets to pivot into so many personas because I believe that her knowledge, once again, as a Black trans woman and a former Black sex worker is so rich. It provides us a different lens on what the world is. And I think it's so important that we really think about what we learn now because of the first person to tag hashtag Black Lives Matter, the first person to say, say her name, the first person to pick up the phone and film a person um, getting assaulted by a police officer. People picking up these phones and then people who are not just marginalized because of their race, but also because of their gender, their sexuality, picking up these digital technologies have really disrupted so many social norms, so many concepts. I can think, for example, that I would argue that a lot of the contemporary makeup looks are because of Black trans women getting online and getting on Instagram and showing their makeup and being consumed by viewers who then go and mimic that look on themselves, regardless of whether they themselves identify as Black, trans, or whatever have you. Uh, and that is what the virtual sojourner does. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, that is just, um, as you were talking, I was just thinking, kind of thinking of all the examples you were giving and how so many of those are now incorporated into our daily norms, right? Or into the norms of the, the spaces, at least. Um, but also, I think very much bleeding into over into the norms of just our daily lives. Um, I mean, we have now certain expectations for what we see, you know, on social networking sites, based on just the examples you gave. And of course, there are several others that we could think of that are really based in Black women's experiences, um, or other marginalized groups experiences. But again, thinking about social media and its ability to amplify, right, those voices. Um, and then what happens when they are amplified to a very broad audience, how some of those things then get divorced from their origins. Um, I was thinking especially about when you mentioned, you know, the makeup, uh, because, you know, these trends in makeup that are now just the norm of how uh, people are, you know, making up their faces are coming from a very distinct culture culture. It was not normal for just an everyday kind of average person to try to do this very extensive makeup look and contouring and, you know, all of this, which comes from Black trans experience, right, and from a certain type of community. But now it has become mainstream, and we have seen people profiting off of this. Um, of course, I feel like you can't talk about <laughs> things becoming mainstream and profit off of marginalized communities without talking about the Kardashians and <laughs> um, you know their makeup empire, which their whole look is really based in right uh, marginalized communities and different trends coming from that. Yes, that's so true. And I think even bringing up the Kardashians is like a testament to the ways that, once again, various groups interfacing with different types of technologies um, has led to this, right? So 
in the case of Kim Kardashian, we know her because of the sex tape going viral. Not even like we, I don't even think we use viral at the time, <laughs> uh, but like th- this idea of one a recording technology for making your own at home sex tapes that are easily shared and disseminated and turned into a product that others can consume. Uh, because they too have DVD players, they too can download a digital de- uh, digital video or whatever have you. And so this was in the early days of the um, online mm-hmm. internet pornography. Yeah, like it, well, technically not, but in in the days when like these concepts of mainstream and porn sites were, this is when Kim Kardashian became who she was, and mm-hmm. that then she pivoted into a reality television show, which was once again, it wasn't necessarily a new medium. It wasn't a new way that people did things, but with this type of um, media environment around reality television, what had happened was there was a writer strike where uh, writers had stopped, um, writers had striked for better terms and conditions. And in the void, we had a huge explosion of reality shows. Uh, and so that normalized reality television show consumption for us. And once again, Kim Kardashian playing off of these ideas that we had about sex, not only about sex, but race and sex, right? I don't believe it would have been that scandalous uh, if her sex tape had been with a white man, but because we're coming off of a society that has very uh, problematic views around sex, interracial sex, but even more specifically between black men and white women, um, it was a taboo, right, that she had played into. And that taboo, once again, was in, in the internet niche. If you go to porn websites, there is literally an interracial category that's nine times out of 10 just black men and white women. Uh, so then we keep going into the 21st century and as the Kardashians and really television's evolving, now we have these social networks emerging and we have this concept of social viewing that once again, isn't a new concept, but we're doing it in new ways We're all, gathering as consumers together on our favorite social network apps and tweeting through a show episode or uh, going to Instagram. And then you have the birth of, once again, blog sites coinciding with this new technology that's sharing every single thing that people do, not just on their television shows, but also on their Instagrams, uh, becoming part of the same exact media ecosystem. And so now 24-7, we're talking about celebrities 24-7, kind of like a 24-7 news cycle. There's now a 24-7 uh, entertainment cycle that is brought, born between this kind of interaction between how humans are using television, how humans are using social networking sites. And so now that we're in the Instagram era and the mobile phone era of social networking, um, even the Kardashians themselves have admitted, oh, we don't really need this platform anymore. But unfortunately, the platform that they have chosen to exploit, Instagram, is a platform that's been built off, I would argue, the desirability politics of Instagram. So desirability politics just means who we as a society endorses beautiful. Mm -hmm. A lot of the desirability on Instagram is rooted in Black strip club culture and Black exotic dancers. And that's down to the proximity to Black men rappers who are now our primary pop culture figures. Uh, That's down to the way that they have their bodies and the way that they dress. And so we see when um, the Kardashians turn to start to exploit the Instagram economy, you see kind of an increase in them uh, turning to the aesthetics of what used to be strictly associated with Black Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
I love how you talked about these desirability politics and really how they are connected to um, politics of beauty for Black women or what we think of in particular around Black women exotic dancers. And I want to get more into this because I know you're doing work on this currently, uh, but let's take a qu quick break first. And then when we come back, I want to learn more about this research that you're doing. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7. FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Melissa Brown, a postdoctoral fellow at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University and an expert on intersectionality, digital sociology, and sexual politics. Now, right before the break, you were just talking about this idea of desirability politics and also making this connection between what we see on Instagram and how women are presenting themselves, women of all different races and ethnicities, um, and connecting that to a particular style of beauty and um, body desirability that's really rooted in Black women's um, bodies and particularly Black women exotic dancers. Um, so can you tell us more about this? idea. Absolutely. So the way my project actually began was I had just joined Instagram, I think during grad school. So I had no idea of like what was really going on. That I just noticed my friends had stopped using Twitter. They were always using Instagram. So I was like, I guess I have to make an account over there if I want to keep up with them. Um, and so after I spent some time on the app, I noticed that there were gorgeous women all over the app, right? And they were all influencers and all these types of things. But when I started to look at the Black women, I remember being very confused because I'm, I was raised in Atlanta and was raised in Atlanta during the golden era of um, Southern rap music, strip club rap. So mm -hmm. I remember traversing the space of Atlanta. You could look at a lady and know she was an anxiety dancer. It wasn't like a thing. It's just like, you know, she's, She's got to get her hair done extra long because she has to swing it and give you the appearance of luxury when she's on the pole. She has to get her nails done extra long, her makeup a certain way. She has to have her body a certain way. So this kind of aesthetic was strict, really restricted to women who were doing that line of work. Mm -hmm. um, because in this concept of Atlanta rap music industry, they weren't just at the strip club, they were going to perform at private parties, they were going to perform at other nightclubs, they were going to be invited to do some type of event for BET's uh, music awards. And that was another factor was that a lot of Black entertainment more broadly, not just rap music, but Black television shows, uh, Black R&B music, um, Black cinema was also shifting back down south. Uh, to Atlanta as a lot of uh, entertainment was shifting to Atlanta more broadly. So that being said, um, there, there, was a, there was a reason why that, was the, the, that aesthetic was a working form <laughs> at the time. So going on to Instagram and seeing women who I felt like, well, I don't believe you're an exotic dancer. You don't mention it on your profile. I don't see you ever visit clubs, but I noticed that you have literally everything else associated with exotic dancers. And I kind of find that problematic, being as there's a respectability that a, a lot of Black middle class women in particular can tap into, uh, and they can also communicate that with aesthetics. 
dance, right? But it's easier to borrow an exotic dancer's aesthetic if you can slap doctor or dentist or some type of other respectable qualifier uh, in your uh, bios. And in particular, I noticed that Black women in fitness were the main ones who were uh, able to borrow these aesthetics or body movements uh, mm -hmm. and not be evaluated the same way an exotic dancer would. And so I became interested in trying to trace how the aesthetics of Black women exotic dancers were suddenly being mapped onto other Black women. But as I began deeper into my research, what I picked up on was that um, it wasn't just Black women. There were actually entire fashion brands <laughs> building off of what was once an aesthetic restricted to Black women exotic dancers. So thinking of Fashion Nova, thinking of Pretty Little Thing, thinking of these um, fast fashion corporations that are known for stealing the aesthetic of Black women, stealing the work and labor of Black women and quickly mass producing it and selling it for their own personal profit while at the same time not featuring the Black women who these uh, styles are stolen from on their own product pages, on their own Instagram profiles. So to me, the question of is why is everyone so enticed by the aesthetic of Black women exotic dancers, but they're not giving Black women exotic dancers credit, they're not hiring Black women exotic dancers to be brand ambassadors. Um, as a matter of fact, Black women exotic dancers have an extremely hard time transitioning into uh, other fields of work because of the stigma that we have around uh, sex work more broadly. So, well, I'm glad that there's a space that the desirability of Black women is um, getting broadened or being accepted more. I also see like a lot of queer, quirky things going on that I think we have to blame on social media. Uh, and I'm very concerned for how it's going to adversely affect the very women who are being emulated in this way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking about how kind of when the pandemic first started and there were very strict social distancing and, and really shelter in place rules happening across the U.S., um, you saw a lot of Black women exotic dancers um, turning to Instagram or other social networking sites in order to continue to try to make money um, from their profession, right? Because people weren't able to go to strip clubs or parties in person anymore, um, but actually still doing, you know, the same work, but in, you know, a digital space. So I one one thing that did happen, and Brandon, this isn't necessarily new. I think that everyone being indoors made it more public. Um, so dancers can dance anywhere, right? Uh, and because of information and communication technologies, we can now stream ourselves dancing to whichever audience that we want to do. However, in the context of the black strip club, in particular, black women's ability to Profit from their dancing is often mediated by Black men who are various gatekeepers, whether they're the party promoters, whether they're the DJ, whether they're a nightclub manager, um, or in most cases, a rapper. So a lot of Black women getting onto Instagram in particular was because Black men rappers were lending their platform through the feature of Instagram Live, where you can share um, your screen with someone else. So that's been used, for example, with the verses. If you've been watching verses, then you've mm -hmm. seen uh, that type of configuration. So 
That said, tons of people follow Black Men Rappers, and a lot, and also tons of people who don't know that Black Men Rappers do this in their free time follow <laughs> Black Men Rappers. So I think that even though for the average consumer in the Black South, what was going on wasn't new or unique, when you open that to a global audience on Instagram, once again, you, were, you run into the fact that these apps were created by white men in Silicon Valley. And white men in Silicon Valley aren't really comfortable with that. And so what ended up happening was uh, they completely changed their features of that particular act form to restrict and constrain the ability of Black women and Black dancers to do that. And they ended up um, updating the rhetoric in their policies, uh, basically uh, saying that strip strip club performances were banned. Right. And so now why that becomes problematic is because we know that rap music in the strip club is produced by Black people in the South in particular. And in my own research, I found that this dynamic between rap music and strip clubs is across the nation. Right. The strip club is a very important venue for rap music production. So when you say you're banning strip club performances, you're restricting the ability of Black musicians to market their music to their audience because that is what has always been uh, that uh, connection and that's bias right but we have to remember that these technologies aren't designed with us in mind the white men in silicon valley who designed these apps are working at home they have completely uh, come up with new work work remote policies they're allowing their employees to move to other states if they so choose these men aren't experiencing what these black women are using using their app are experiencing and so they're just viewing it from their lens and how it violates what they believe is supposed to be happening on Instagram and what I would say that um, is supposed to be happening on Instagram is the Kardashians right (laughs) the Kardashians are supposed to be mediating and taking and stealing from black culture and being a mediator for the consumption of that instead of actual black women doing that work and providing that as an outlet on the same exact Mm, yes yes look kardashians keep popping up Um, (laughs) um, but i mean i think that example is just of course so timely because we've really seen um social media grow and evolve alongside the kardashians kind of growing and evolving their own brand right so these things are really happening in parallel um now speaking of course about uh black women exotic dancers and thinking about this South. Um, I would be remiss if we didn't at least spend a little bit of time talking about P-Valley, the show, um, which um, features, of course, for folks who are unfamiliar, focuses on a strip club set in Mississippi, right, the pink, and, um, you know, following really the behind the scenes, it is a scripted show, but the behind the scenes of what's happening at the strip club, in the strippers' lives, in the owners' lives as well, and that features a Memphian, Brandy Evans, as the the lead role as Mercedes. And so I'm wondering from your point of view, you know, how much does this show, um, you know, draw upon what you know um, in regards to Black women exotic dancers in the South? And then how much of it do you think is um, profiting off of kind of maybe our obsession or our, you know, interest in Black women exotic dancers? Okay, that's a really good question. So I love the show. I, I guess I should preface with that. Um, so I'm probably not going to say anything negative. <laughs> uh, but I, 
the what I liked about the show was the intentionality of the creator behind the show. So she actually took a, a pr- approach to creating the uh, play that precedes the show that I did in my own project, right? So she interviewed Black women dancers. She observed them. She went to their place of work. That's an ethnography. So I really appreciate the fact that the, uh, uh, a, a um, not necessarily an academic lens, but like a a perspective to be faithful to the reality of what Black women exotic dancers were going through was so important because I think that there's a ton of media about Black women exotic dancers that has nothing to do with them. So I think it's so important that the creator uh, took that approach to uh, cultivating that story. So that said, because of that story, it is so faithful to what I found in my own research. The main thing that I really appreciated that the show talks about was the contention around the strip club as a space, not just for what goes on inside the strip club, but what it means for the broader county and politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reality is that strip clubs are facing this. They are facing this gentrification. They are facing politicians trying to get them shut down and build something on top of them. They are facing basically eliminating a cultural space that's really important for Black people, not just to entertain ourselves, but also to create art, right? And I do think that the strip club is devalued in a way that P-Valley kind of flips. Like P-Valley shows you the value of strip clubs. Mothers are working at this strip club. Um, New musicians are working at this strip club. People who are going through tough times are getting celeste and comfort at the strip club. The strip club is not just this place or space where things nefarious or dark and dirty are happening. It's also a place where people are finding joy. And I think that's extremely important. And so another aspect of the show that I like is that it really shows how much labor goes into being an exotic dancer. My favorite parts of the show, um, I guess from a cinematography standpoint is when they show a dancer, whether it's Mercedes or um, Miss Mississippi, um, doing a pole trick and they cut out all the noise except for them breathing. Like I need people to understand how much labor exotic dancers put into their work. And I think that feature of the show really communicates it. So I do think that if people feel like they don't have the perception of exotic dancers that they thought they did uh, prior to hearing this conversation, that P-Valley is a really good place to start to disrupt those assumptions and to think differently about what Black women exotic dancers offer us and also about the ways that the strip club features in the Black community uh, and why we actually need to protect that space and what forces are trying to eliminate that space from the strip club. I think I want to leave people with the thought of if there was no strip club during 2000s to 2015 or whatever, what would we be listening to as Black people? What would be our music what would be our where would we have had fun like what what party what would our college parties have looked like there's so much that uh the black strip club has contributed to our contemporary cultural moment as black people and i think that we need to dispense with the respective value respectability that teaches us not to value the labor of those women Mm -hmm. absolutely 
Well, I think that is the perfect note to end on. Some really critical questions for us to think about as we're considering maybe not only exotic dancers, but music and these various social networking platforms in different ways, right? Oftentimes we think about the perils of these different aspects, but really what else have they provided that are very central to our experiences um, today? So Dr. Melissa Brown, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this and I really hope your audience gets something from this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Melissa Brown. Wow, that conversation has given me so much to think about. I mean, we covered a wide range of topics, but all still centered around ideas of intersectionality and Black feminism, and of course, the digital world as well. We are so much into you know social media these days and the digital space um, that I think what Dr. Brown ended our conversation with this call to really be conscious and critical consumers of social media is so important, increasingly important as we are continuing to social distance and maybe finding ourselves on social media even more. Well, for today's positive note, I just want to remind you that the most important things in life are the connections you make with others. So let's make sure we're making genuine connections, connections that uplift, encourage, and inspire one another. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa. Join me back here next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.